Hello, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Radical Thoughts Podcast. In this episode, I talk with Seth Wheeler. Seth has recently edited and provided a new introduction to the latest edition of In and Against the State through Pluto Books. He has a long history of interacting with the extra-parliamentary lefts in the UK, and we discuss his background, the politics of bank robbing, cycles of struggle within the UK, and much more. We hope you enjoy. Seth Wheeler has over 20 years of experience within the domestic and international extra-parliamentary lefts. He is the co-editor of Occupy Everything, co-founder of the communist organization Plan C, and a founding editor of the online workers journal Notes from Below. He has contributed to Novara Media, among other publications, and is completing his PhD at Royal Holloway University of London. He is also the editor of the book, the new edition of the book, In and Against the State, Discussion Notes for Socialists, out from Pluto Press. Thank you for coming on, Seth. Uh, thanks for having me. So I, I wanted to reach out in part because of the second edition of this book that you have uh, helped edit and you have a, a new intro new intro for, um, but also because of just some of the strike actions and stuff among uh, higher education and public education workers here in in London and across the UK. Um, but to get started, can you maybe just talk a little bit about your experience with the left and the kind of movements and issues that you've been involved with in the extra parliamentary left? Because it, you know, it boldly states you have 20 years of experience. Yeah. Um... So I suppose I, I won't bog you down with too much biographical detail, although I think it's probably important to flesh some of that out, um, A, for younger listeners and maybe international listeners as well, so to give it some sort of context um, about the sort of politics or, or the particular form of a sort of anti-authoritarian communism that I, I found some sort of resonance with as a younger person which then went on to sort of shape some of the political projects I was involved in and, and my comprehension of where we're at. So um, I grew up in a sort of working class family, the, the product of a, a single parent. Um, my mother basically was was on benefits for most of her life, most of her adult life after I was born. Um, and there were sort of like a innate sort of solidarities in the local area because my mother was a lot older than a lot of the other women on the estate who were also in a similar position as her with like young children with absent fathers she ended up as a sort of like unofficial benefits advice service <laughs> where lots of young women would turn up and my mum would help them sort of navigate the dole and housing benefit and whatever um, but politics itself was never really discussed in the home. You know, there, there was, I'm not saying that it was an apolitical home by any stretch of the imagination, but we weren't of the chattering classes where it's something we discussed over, over dinner or whatever. Um, I suppose my absent father as well. Um, so, I mean, my mum, my mum was like one coordinate with sort of social solidarity and this sort of like recognition of a sort of common set of conditions that you could maybe help people navigate or organize was one of these sort of frames that informed i suppose what my my politics later and then my father my absent father was a uh, a bank robber basically right? <laughs> and i suppose um 
uh, what Marxists would would rationalise as some sort of like you know materialist comprehension of the quote unquote work he was involved in. So on some of the few times I did actually speak to him about that um, as I grew up, as as I got older, you know, he he had this sort of like metric by which he sort of like rationalised the work he would undertake. So you know, if he was going to go rob somewhere. And the money that he was going to extract from that place was not the equivalent of the money that he could have, or not just the equivalent, but more than what he could have earned if he was caught and then put in prison. He wouldn't do the job. So there was this sort of like anti-work politics, <laughs> I suppose, on one side, and this sort of like social solidarity aspect uh, that was in the home, although, as I say, politics was never really discussed in in those terms. You know, we weren't Labour voters by any stretch of the imagination. So I left school at about 16 with uh, pretty poor GCSE results. The GCSEs in the UK are the sort of qualifications you take when you go in, when you sort of reach between the ages of like 14 and 16, and they then define whether you're going to go into A-levels or what A-levels you would take. And at that period, I, I decided to go to the local college to try and get, you know, my A-levels and very quickly decided that that was a waste of time and I wasn't really interested in being there and uh, dropped out. Uh, so this is sort of like the beginning of the 90s. And at that period, you still had um, a sort of reasonable benefit system. And if you weren't of the class that went away to university... Um, it was sort of genuinely socially accepted that you could have maybe a few years between school and the world of work where, you know, you it would be tolerated for young people to go away and quote-unquote find themselves, you know, live in these collective houses. And that's really where I came into contact with um, a radical politics proper. So I got involved in, well, I moved into one of these houses and like I say, every town in the country must have had a sort of bohemian district where young people would live together and you know they you know want to be poets or djs or in fucking punk bands or whatever and into that soup was also like fanzine culture and at the time i suppose the, the early 90s the tories were in power uh, michael howard who was the home secretary at that period tried to rush through a bit of legislation um the the criminal justice bill in 1994 which sought to criminalise the free festival scene, the rave scene, which was like a huge part of my, my sort of so my cultural sphere that I was involved in, but also sought to criminalise the growing anti-roads movement in the UK, which um, had emerged in response to this sort of reckless road building scheme that the Tories were then pushing infrastructure projects. Uh, also, hunt saboteurs, people involved in going out and stopping sort of like blood sports. And also sought to criminalise squatting and sort of like uh, traditional gypsy Romany ways of living. Um, so all those people sort of brought together into this sort of coalition. And I started going to those demos along with some other mates and sort of got like, you know, just came into contact with people from the ultra left, either selling newspapers or handing out pamphlets or whatever, and then found myself going into London to attend meetings about this sort of stuff and very quickly sort of got drawn into that subculture. And then I left I left my hometown, moved it into London and started squatting. Uh, and at that period, you could, yeah, you could adequately reproduce your life, I would argue, as someone who is like into revolutionary politics full time. 
I squatting. So you would, you know, I could go out in the evening, go to another squat, there'd be a meeting or a film being shown or there'd be a gig or, um, and there was this, yeah, this sort of network of, of, for want of a better word, communes that a couple of thousand people would sort of like rotate through. And that created this sort of particular revolutionary subculture. And I would argue that it was almost like a makeshift anarchism that was the dominant politics of that period in that scene that I was part of. Um, so I was involved in that. And then basically, I mean, how actively I was involved is, is a question, I suppose, like just living my life and getting involved in sort of anti-fascist stuff, um, quite single issue campaign stuff as well, like anti-GMO stuff and blah, blah, blah. In relationship to sort of like workers' struggle, um, it was pretty absent, I would argue. Not that there weren't people doing that work, but, you know, given my own background, that I wasn't really the uh, the product of a, a Protestant work ethic or, you know, that uh, a horny-handed son of toil, uh, work, workplace struggle was pretty much absent from that cycle of struggle that, um, for, for me at least. And then I got involved in organising um, or mobilising around June the 18th, which was this big global day of action, one of the first big global days of action that defined that cycle of struggle, the auto-globalisation cycle of struggle, by coming into contact with a group called Reclaim the Streets, who were, you know, broadly or ostensibly a sort of radical ecological group, but they were a coalition of sort of like anti-capitalist identities inside of that so anarchists council communists people who thought they were situationists etc etc um and that was really the beginning of like quite a rapid political awakening and sharpening of analysis um so i was involved in that sort of cycle of struggle and then yeah i suppose drifted into what we would now refer to as more sort of base unionism getting involved in actively supporting workers in struggle and reading more of that sort of theory that had come out of particularly the Italian workerist movement. So I was very interested in sort of rank and file politics, which I still am. Um, I, I bought the necessity for like workers inquiry on the basis that um, I wasn't attached to the vanguardist model. I didn't believe that, you know, revolutionaries should go in and teach workers to suck eggs, that we had to go in and listen to their struggles and help them to develop their own struggles in their own way. And, maybe take a secondary role in, you know, not necessarily a leadership role. Uh, and that was really the politics that I've maintained ever since, really. Um, um, and then I got involved um, again through the sort of like dregs or the remnants of that movement was brought into, brought into contact with people in 2010 um, who were involved in the university occupations in the UK. Um, which had arisen in response to the Brown Review of Higher Education, uh, which saw like loads of universities go into occupation, um, um, a series of very spectacular um, demonstrations and riots, including uh, uh, an attack on Tory headquarters, Millbank building, um, and then a sort of criminalisation or a, a, an attempt to sort of like police that movement out of existence which basically created a, a, a new cadre, a new, a, a new cadre of sort of militants at the university campuses 
many of whom I argue would go on to to give shape to a particular branch of Corbynism that I think I tried to attempt to talk to in the introduction of the book. Sorry if that was a bit long. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's a there's a, a lot there, and it's it's okay if it's long since it, there, there's a lot. Um, what you touched on there later with the the 2010 uh, kind of uni uni movements and stuff. Um, that's, that's been interesting to me as someone who's been going to grad school here, especially since there's another wave of, of strike actions that just took place. Um, yeah. simply because it's, it's interesting to me how ongoing these kind of struggles have been in the UK and the kind of history of people's people's understanding of, Oh, like university having this history of being a once free kind of public good, uh, common good that has been slowly and ongoingly kind of graded. I mean, obviously you can also even go even further back and talk about, you know, 68 stuff or when I was on campus here, you know, we had to like a, a teach in and I quoted, you know, EP Thompson talking about, you know, Warwick university limited and that, that kind of stuff. Like it, it's been pretty interesting to me that it, it there is, you know, a sense of this as an ongoing issue. Whereas in the U S it's just kind of like, no rich people go to university because it's a private <laughs> institution, yeah, even if yeah. it's a state university. So, yeah. I, 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 and I think that this, this is a, a interesting feature of that lets us talk maybe a bit about the book um, because in and against the state, the original version was a pamphlet from the 1970s, if I remember correctly. And it's, it's fairly interesting because it's talking mostly about workers who are in the public sector um, in a variety of ways. School is one of them, but not the only one that they talk about. Um, so it's it's in and against the state from the perspective of working in the public sector rather than necessarily being in and against the state in this more like, you know, oh, we're going to form a, a parliamentary party and we're going to work in and against the state, which I think is actually a very a very under discussed kind of way of talking about, you know, in a, in a post Fordist, very service driven world, there's a lot of work that happens through state enterprise or through state funded, you know, semi-private connections. Um, so I, I'd like to hear a little bit more, maybe if you can, about kind of your connection to this book and just what led to getting a second edition out there and, and writing an intro for it. Yeah. So, okay. So similarly, like I, I agree with that reading of the text, right? I think there, mm -hmm. there are lots of ways of reading that text, but I think the authors themselves are pretty uh, specific in uh, in uh, um, identifying uh, what they mean by uh, revolutionary socialism. So obviously, that you know, for example, people from the Trotskyist tradition may well have a sort of in and against strategy albeit one predicated on entering into the state's disciplinary architecture so you can seize control of it in your party's interest, right? And this was certainly not of that sort of vanguardist model. I mean, basically, these were people who had come out of the sort of post-68 milieus. They were very critical of the sort of revolutionary leadership models that we were talking about earlier that I had sort of inherited these sort of critiques of that sort of post-68 drift away from the sort of organized communist party form and what they were interested in doing is I, I think applying some of the logics of uh the italian workerist tradition to what their own work here so what they recognized was that you know the balance of class forces being what they were at the time 
that these these institutions such as the NHS or the benefit system or whatever were objective goods, like seen to be objectively good on the basis that they helped to maintain the working class and they helped to maintain at least a, mo a modicum of sort of like survival inside a very brutal capitalist system. However, they also recognised these architectures to be a product of the state containing all their own disciplinary logics. So what they were demanding, or at least trying to think through, of other militants is how can we defend these institutions from being hollowed out or marketized um, or, for, or further, you know, hollowed out, while at the same time trying to think through, through this process of inquiry with both workers and service users, alternate models of service provision um, or social reproduction, I suppose, is what we, we would now call it, um, that weren't reliant on you know, the state or capitalism's disciplinary logic. And that's still a question that the book, I mean, they, they were unable to answer that question, right? But what it's a proposition to the movement. It's a proposition to socialists to try and think through that contradiction. And I thought, I, the reason why I thought the book was useful to publish now or republish now was the promise of Corbynism, or at least the radical promise of Corbynism. So if we were to return to those people that I was talking about in the 2010 student movement, many many of whom I would argue came out of the sort of contentious social movement politics that I have been part of, a lot of people identified as sort of anti-authoritarian, autonomist was a thing that was, that was the, the academic, but you know, phrase at the time, buzzword, or, you know, had a sort of like anarcho-communist bent to them. And I was sort of, you know, I was I was interested in thinking through how can these people have these two quite contradictory political imaginaries, you know, on the one hand, a total rejection of the state and capital, and on the other hand, a desire to see a social democrat in power, right? And I think people saw it as an opportunity, or at least saw Corbyn as an opportunity to regroup um, a lot of very disparate struggles into a coherent, a relatively coherent political project. Um, and obviously not everybody joined the Labour Party, but a lot of those people did throw their weight behind ensuring Jeremy became leader of the party in the hope that this productive space would, this encounter between the extra parliamentary left and the residual the residual old socialists inside the Labour Party could begin to maybe define and create a new politics. And I think the early period of Corbynism was really defined by that sort of exchange of those sort of ideas right and that's why i think it was able to appeal to a lot of younger younger voters um who saw i think you know corbyn was a bit of an empty signifier for lots of people on the left you know at that time so like if you're an old tanky or something you would go oh yeah you know like he's back if you're an old benite you go oh here he is he's back again and i think a similar thing was also happening on the other side of the atlantic with Bernie Sanders and the Democratic Party, mm. where you see this big political opportunity. Um, the extra parliamentary left has, you know, had has been able to maintain itself and develop all these new languages and all these new methodologies and um, framings to comprehend the world, but hasn't been able to necessarily exert a power into the world like um, en masse. And I think people see these opportunities to basically try and inflect and transform the politics of these old legacy institutions, the Labour Party and the Democratic Party. 
And obviously there's been some successes in that. And the question remains whether that was the right thing to do. I mean, obviously, you know, historians hate counterfactuals. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, we can't go back and unmake that. But I think, you know, I, I wanted to kickstart that conversation again because I think a lot of the Corbynite promise was predicated on a, a, a radical reappraisal of, like, how we were going to do politics and how we were going to, like, run the economy, um, which I don't think can just be reduced to, oh, it was just always going to be social democracy, right? Um, yeah. which, is what, which is what kept a lot of the extra parliamentary left out um from my generation at least outside of that project they were just immediately like this is just bullshit it's going to go fucking nowhere you know this is social democracy again why are we all falling for it blah 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 and yet i think uh, that that's a total misreading of of history's movement and and the potentialities that were, were that were there nascent nascent underneath the sort of surface right it it is kind of weird how how closely the like Corbyn and Sanders stuff mirrored each other to me, um, and I definitely get that sense too. Of yeah, there was a lot of excitement, and a, a lot of people suddenly felt like they had a, a real grasp on kind of like a historical moment of politics that a lot of a lot of younger people, especially, had never really sensed before in the U.S. political system, at least through the Sanders movement. I, I didn't do a whole lot in terms of campaigning or anything, but I like rhetorically in conversation or whatever, if politics came up, that's where I would place myself as behind the Sanders movement. And I would support it just through the you know the propaganda or whatever. And, and it is kind of, yeah, looking in hindsight, it's kind of a, a question of like, what was the right sort of move? Because I didn't necessarily expect that he was going to single-handedly roll in and, you know, usher in the grand new age of, of American socialism or anything. But there was this kind of hope that, oh, well, maybe this can serve as this mobilizing effort. Yeah, you, we, we might get some better kind of like common good services and we might be able to just get people involved in a sense of like being politically engaged from a more left-wing perspective than is normal. But there's on the I mean, other hand... Yeah, I mean, sorry. I mean, yeah, I agree. I mean, you, you certainly saw that here in the... Uh, you know, like looking at America from here, from the perspective mm-hmm. of the UK. I mean, when you when we go into the sort of George Floyd, Black Lives yeah. moment, uh, and then, you know, abolition, for example, comes back with a vengeance as a sort of like mm-hmm. major topic of social movement uh, mobilisation... Uh, and obviously that's, you know, that's got a long history in the US. That's, you know, like uh, 60 to 100 years of sort of conversations in in the in the black community and in the sort of like socialist left. But actually there was this unique opportunity that presented itself at that moment. What you had was sort of like, for want of a better word, DSA or at least democratic, uh, left democratic candidates in cities mm-hmm. Uh, you know, who are like either on, you know, running in local for local office or mayoral ships or whatever, who were then very seriously discussing the possibility of how would you implement at the level of policy mm-hmm. a sort of abolitionist, you know, yeah. or, or transformation. And that was, I think that's really the unique moment that, um, that was presented to us, this sort of potential opportunity where we could like suddenly radically push the agenda forward if there was the political will in these offices to do so uh, in conjunction with a sort of street movement, a very sort of active street movement. 
And in the UK, this was always something that I think was relatively absent. I think in hindsight, I mean, there wasn't really a social movement behind Corbyn. Mm-hmm. Or to be more precise, there was a social movement behind Corbyn, but it was limited solely to sort of like the train of electoral politics. So it's like you could mobilise thousands of people to go out and knock on fucking doors to ensure that Jeremy got the vote. Mm-hmm. But could you get those people to be involved in sort of more militant forms of direct action or community organising or workplace organising? Um, that's a big question. Yeah. And I think actually if we were to look at Corbyn in some sort of parallel universe where he was able maybe to be elected in 2017, I think in hindsight, we hardly had a policy offer together, right? We had all these sort of radical ideas like four-day working week, Green New Deal, all this sort of stuff. But, you know, quite a lot of the unions were behind that at that period. Um, Would we have had the street movement who would have gone out and occupied and, you know, you know, there would have been capital flight. There would have been, you know, the, the party itself would have gone into revolt against him. Would we have had a street movement that could go out and hold uh, the bourgeoisie to account, you know, yeah. uh, hold elected officials to account? I just don't know. I really don't know. And again, I think if people are serious about a sort of in and against strategy moving forwards, these are the sort of like things that we need to consider, like how, even if we like disagree with the limits of social democracy, um, how do we mobilise our, our class um you know, in its best interests, whilst also trying to move beyond those politics and create space for politics that can't be captured by parliamentarianism. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's really the, still the challenge in the present, um, because I think a lot of people are not going to leave the Labour Party or the Democratic Party after this last term. I think people have felt the possibility of power and what that would mean to exercise power. And I think, yeah. I, I can't see people leaving those projects if the extra parliamentary left doesn't have an offer that can actually yeah. affect change in much the same way, right? Yeah, very much. Because I think with with the Bernie Sanders movement, the, I think the downside now is that in hindsight, it's like, I mean, well, one of the benefits that Bernie Sanders had is against someone like Corbyn is that, you know, he, he had one main thing that he could really push, which was the healthcare issue and everyone in the US, I think, kind of knows that our healthcare sucks in some way. Um, so it, it is a fairly good, you know, semi-single issue like mobilization platform that sounds very concrete. And even even fairly like bourgeois economists will when pushed kind of admit that, you know, this like private healthcare scheme that we have doesn't doesn't operate very well. Uh, but I think at the same time, you know that so that was a, a a kind of a benefit is that it gave a little bit more of a like specificity to I think a lot of people's sense of like what they were demanding. But on the other hand, I think that after you know he didn't get elected, we didn't have a real kind of safety net of like where the energy should go. You know of, of yeah. catching those people that were also heavily mobilized and saying, okay, well, well let's think about what we want to do now. And so you got this kind of fragmenting of like some people just decide, okay, well, we'll all just go behind Biden and think that we can ex- exert a ton of pressure on the Biden administration, um, which so far hasn't really done a whole lot. And then there, there are people that uh, kind of fall into this more. It's funny because in the in the nineties, like post left used to mean more of this like from scratch kind of anarchism, like, you know, death of the labor movement, we have to start all over thing. And now it has this weird kind of like semi-reactionary, we need to go find the like 
white working classes that are all this like traditional laborer kind of thing, which I, I don't understand where it comes from really. Um, so some people kind of absorb into that, this kind of like, oh, you know, all the wokeness ruined the movement. So we have to build this kind of like, you know, the real worker movement kind of thing, get people going to that. And then you have other people that are, I think are kind of just getting absorbed into American Stalinist sects because they feel like it, you know, kind of the, you know, the PSL and stuff do their kind of classic movement hopping around and people just see them going out and doing activism. So they decide, Hey, I'll just join up with these guys and they'll tell me that there's a sense of purpose. And maybe, maybe I'll think that Deng is going to save me <laughs> in the future or something like that. Yeah. So no, I, I mean, I do wonder whether the, the, the party form has obviously returned in the last cycle. And I think, you know, being in a party and having some sort of like clear strategy and trajectory together is obviously one of the things that um, I think people are sort of taking with them as they move forwards in their activism or in their militancy. So it comes as no surprise to me that, you know, the, the, these older forms of politics, which we may have thought were dead, you know, 20, 20 years ago, have returned with such vengeance, right? But I also feel like something else has happened. And I mean, I can't speak in, uh, about the American context at all, right? But in the British context, if you were like radicalized like I was, you know, in the 90s or even earlier, and you wanted to commit yourself to like a, um, a full-time revolutionary sort of like, mm -hmm. you know, fantasy, you could at least, you know, as I was saying, there, there were things that could support you to do that, right? You could squat, you could like claim benefits, you could do whatever, right? Nowadays, if you're a young person who's been turned on to politics or radicalized through the Corbyn moment, you know, where are your opportunities to commit full time to this to this struggle or, or to materially reproduce your life on the basis of that struggle? And they're very limited. And I think what you're seeing is a lot of people then going into what is like a sort of professional activism. So the NGO, the NGOification of social movements right. where people go in, they become like professional organizers and blah, blah, blah. And you see lots of young people then go out and throw their weight behind projects, um, you know, where they, they might go out and knock on doors and do the same thing that they were doing during Corbyn. And they're doing that activity, not only because they think it's the right thing to do. I'm not saying that they don't think it's the right thing to do and it and that it isn't the right thing to do. But they're doing it as well in the hope that someone in the upper echelons of those organisations is going to recognise them and that they may have an opportunity to get one of these nice organiser jobs. Right. And I think. So that how we make space for, for politics and how we make space for um, a sort of volunteerism, I suppose, for one of the better word, again, to reemerge where it isn't mediated through this sort of professional cadre of activists who are all reliant on funding. So they can't say the things that they really need to say. <laughs> um, how we break through that is the million dollar question, but also like, how we break through that without losing that skills and that, for want of a better word, that sort of like professionalism. Um, uh, it's maybe not the term I'm looking for, but um, anyway, yeah, that 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 skill that skill set that comes with like the, those professional organisations has definitely benefited the movement in some sense. Um, but in, at the same time, I think it's it's acted to uh, draw the bridge up behind those people so that other people can't really get into the inner workings of these sort of organizations in the way that they could if it was just predicated on like anyone just rocks up shows their commitment and then they're out there you know like mm -hmm. 
which is what I think you're talking about, that sort of subculture before where people just threw themselves into this activity. Um, so, yeah, that that that's something that remains to be sort of like answered. And I still think so there are there are material conditions underpinning this, but also I think politics has been shaped particularly online in the last five years. Um, so that anyone who's maybe sort of arguing a sort of extra parliamentary or maybe even an anti-authoritarian politics is deemed to be like a crank or a wrecker who doesn't really comprehend the class yeah. struggle and blah, blah, blah. And yet somehow we've wrestled these organisations back for the quote-unquote left. And yet there's never really a critique of what the left is or what these what these gains for our class necessarily are beyond sort of like ameliorative action i.e., you know, like better wages and conditions or whatever. And, you know, obviously I support all that stuff, but like that's not revolution. Yeah. I mean, I, to be fair, I should say that the fourth variations of here, the post-Bernie dispersion or diffusion or whatever you would call it is, is I do think that there is there are contingents of people that kind of went, okay, well, what does it mean to get involved in a much more kind of grassroots, you know, that that kind of autonomous kind of going okay let's not assume that we have this pre-made prefigured party platform ready and really think about what it takes to start from scratch i think that there are, there are a fair amount of people that also kind of had that that feeling that like yeah we've got to really start building up a a, a labor movement or an anti-capitalist movement that isn't just going to piggyback you know that 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 can push and be in favor of something like the Bernie Sanders movement, but still has to think of itself as like an autonomous force in society that has you know this kind of involvement of everyday people in their working lives. And so, so I, I think I should say that there are you know there are people that you know from my perspective <laughs> went the correct <laughs> the correct way, I guess. Um, but. Um, you know, it, it has been kind of funny, uh, the online discourse of that kind of like the re the return of American kind of Stalinism to me is very bizarre. It, it was kind of floating around as a very like Internet based thing. And it suddenly feels like it it has a lot more force and a lot of people like kind of behind it now. Not hugely, well, but like on the left. It probably memed itself into existence. Yeah. And I think there's some arguments to suggest that you know maybe it's started off as a series of mimetic jokes and then like basically you know this i mean what you saw in corbynism for example was there was uh, particularly from what we would maybe define as the old hard left the, the residual rumps of the hard left inside the labor party is you did see this sort of like attempt to discipline the more sort of like um, extra parliamentary attachments to Corbynism. So, you know, like don't critique Corbynite um, councillors, for example, you know, because you're going to jeopardise Jeremy's electoral chances, mediate your language, mediate your demands, all this sort of stuff. And it was that sort of big finger wagging, keep the party line, you know, like. Um, and I think that is that is something that's very hard to argue against when you're in that sort of situation, you know, like, you know, this opportunity of actually seizing power and, you know, what what is the correct line to take? However, I think if actually people had chosen to go against some of these councillors who were rushing in austerity and behaving very much in the same way that they, they had before, um, 
that may have inspired many in the working class to vote for Jeremy, right? Because <laughs> basically they would have been a voice who was actually pushing their agenda rather than like pushing, quote unquote, the correct line, which, you know, objectively wasn't benefiting the class in any way, right? Yeah. Um, so I think all of that sort of stuff still needs to be thought through. Um, I mean, I, I'm very sympathetic, I suppose, to the idea of a party. And what we mean by that, I don't know. I mean, like, well, I do know. But I think that's actually addressed to class composition. Mm-hmm. So um, if you think about, you know, in the last 10 years in the UK, there's been loads of, quote unquote, autonomous workers' struggles, whether that's sort of like the, the self-organisation of Deliveroo riders or people in the gig mm-hmm. economy, to, I don't know, the example of the E15 mums who are these women who were being evicted, who then just basically went and squatted um, like empty council property, you know, to so that they weren't distributed across the UK and broken up from their friendship networks and their fa- familial networks. The, the problem is like, you know, the theories and the ideas that I, I I find some attachment to these ideas of Italian workerism they 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 were uh, they were produced in a period where the working class was a lot more um, homogenised right so you had big sites of production mm-hmm. and lots of people shared very similar living conditions maybe even the same municipal landlord or whatever right. And therefore, if you wanted to take action that fell outside of the trade unions or even maybe uh, the party's discipline, it did have the possibility of viralizing amongst the class because everyone shared the same sort of material conditions. Nowadays, you know, our class is so fragmented, both technically, you know, in terms of how it's arranged by work and socially fragmented as well. But when you do see these moments of autonomy, they can't necessarily generalise or be taken up by the whole of the class in the same way as they could in the maybe in the 60s and 70s. And then maybe what you do need is a sort of quote unquote party form or, or a mechanism that can tie and aggregate these different forms of struggle together and articulate them mm-hmm. in with a sort of political programme. Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting that that's the fucking Labour Party, mm-hmm. right? In fact, right. I don't think it is. However, I think the Labour Party and the Democratic Party appeared at that moment in history to present an opportunity for that sort of regroupment. And therefore, it should come as no surprise that people run towards that. And also in relationship to Stalinism, it should come as no surprise then that people may correctly be searching for a party form. However, I think, you know, like the the old party forms of all these sort of forms of discipline, holding the correct line and whatever, need to be sort of like radically over, uh, overhauled so that people are actually disciplined to the struggle of the class itself and we take our leadership inside the working class not as sort of like a vanguard going in trying to give people the quote-unquote correct lines which often just don't feel you know correct to people on the basis of their like material reality yeah. um so i mean and I suppose the other, you know, maybe coming back then to like the conversation um, around university struggle in the UK. I mean, obviously, in the last five or six years, we've we've seen increasing waves of strikes around the sort of further marketization of people in the sector, and we've also seen a sort of growing uh, student movement, um, particularly around sort of decolonial thought, like how do we begin to challenge the very uh, curricula that we're being taught, which reinforces 
maybe sort of like the white patriarchal capitalist system, right? And both of those things have really been predicated, I, I think, on the belief that the university system in and of itself is a social good, i.e. that if you're coming from a working class background and you enter into the university system, then, you know, somehow... Um, your, your, if you complete your if you complete your undergraduate or your, your your masters and come out with that bit of paper, you'll be in exactly the same condition as your sort of middle class peers, right? Um, and we never really neither of those two struggles seem to assess the role of the university and its maintenance in social elites. Um, and I, you know, like the university structure itself is never reconsidered. It's always like it's something that needs to be seized and run better mm -hmm. or it needs to be seized and the education needs to be better. And it's never like, well, actually, the university system itself might be uh, a mechanism to reproduce social elites, give them access to the upper echelons of the job market. That It's basically a factory that shits these people out with these mm -hmm. degrees, uh, rakes in loads of money, create debt, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that was at least one of the sort of more revolutionary aspects of the struggles in 2010, where people were beginning to think through, you know, what would an alternate model of higher education, you know, maybe focused in working class communities or in working class or in workplaces look like and what could that be? And, and I think that's been sort of dropped off the agenda. Mm -hmm or is at least currently lacking from these sort of struggles. I was definitely interested in trying to talk more because I, I went when when LSE was joining in the strike, you know, I would go out to stand outside the library and tell people <laughs> to ask people not to go into the library to study, to show, you know, solidarity and stuff and got to talk with some of the PTAs and things who um, GTAs who are, you know, on strike and, um, about, you know, the issues about, you know, what, what motivated them and things like that. And it was kind of, yeah, like hard to, to get a sense of that, you know, what is the real, what is the real sense of an alternative other than just, you know, asking the higher admin to cut their own, you know, salaries so that they can keep a little bit more for the like younger teaching staff and stuff. Like it, it, there wasn't a whole lot of discussion about what are the attempts to build long long-term dialogues between students and staff or what are what are the attempts to produce you know efforts to bring education outside of the classroom in the university itself into a more kind of like open situation that sort of doesn't make it this enclosed commodified or uh, kind of thing or like you know the there were some good teach-ins that kind of brought that up or, or brought up, you know, university industrial complex of like how they were tied up in producing these giant expensive buildings that's only purpose is to be exclusive, to bring in private speakers and then, you know, offer tickets to people who want to see it. And then the students can go see this person who brings in a bunch of money. And the, there was some stuff like that, but there wasn't, yeah, like a whole lot of discussion about, you know, what like education itself is as a, as a good, like for people to really have access to that isn't going to be this kind of paid for service that you, this overpaid for service that then you, you know, you're saddled with a bunch of debt and you just have a degree that sounds nice. It, it wasn't quite as it was, it was happening, but it wasn't quite as 
up to the forefront as uh, uh, as I was kind of like hoping might get pushed a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Especially when you think that, you know, quite a lot of the energy behind these strikes, particularly from junior career academics, uh, you know, is driven by people who probably cut their teeth in radical politics in the 2010 wave. You know, people who are probably undergraduates at that period who now find themselves, you know, with these sort of like terrible, terribly contracted jobs inside the inside the academy. But I wonder whether it is about like thinking through a sort of in and against strategy here. You know, like obviously we need to like struggle against the marketizer, the further marketization. We need to defend people's working conditions. We need to like strengthen the union, et cetera, et cetera. But equally at the same time, how do we begin to think through forms of education, like you say, that aren't commodified, that aren't inside necessarily the university system with that bit of paper that, you know, like people are prepared to throw themselves into debt for. And I think particularly for people coming from working class backgrounds, you know, if they buy this mythology that this little bit of paper and this debt is going to gain them access to the upper echelons of the job market, they really are fucking fooling themselves, right? I mean, like, yeah, I think it's bad enough for proletarianized middle-class youth who are going through that, but at least potentially, you know, when they get shat out the other end of the system, they at least have the possibility of networks and friendships mm-hmm. that they can rely upon where people maybe from more, you know, economically deprived backgrounds are suddenly like, out there struggling and really fucking really struggling with it mm-hmm. so i mean i am i i think um there are some interesting sort of developments in the uk so um at the moment so the world transformed um again for international listeners is basically a political festival um whose roots i suppose come out of the extra parliamentary left or at least that 2010 student wave um that was that ended up becoming attached to labor party conference so they do a sort of like fringe festival around labor uh and what they brought in was a series of extra parliamentary actors and groups and activists and whatever to have sort of like productive dialogue with those on the left of the party um and that has produced i would say produced a particular sort of level of consciousness amongst younger members of the labor party left which has been relatively useful. However, I would say, and I, um, it probably still appeals to people who are, you know, a university educated left. It's very much part of that sort of online Twitter left. Um, but there, uh, there, there's lots of discussions about how we could think through in that network, at least how we could think through provision, education and, uh, and radical politics as political programs in sort of working class communities and workspaces. And that's something that I think we're going to see in the next couple of years uh, develop here, particularly with the recent election of Sharon Graham. Um, um, So in the UK, she's just sort of is now elected as um, general secretary. Uh, She's got some very, very interesting sort of ideas um, on the basis of what she wants to do with the union. So she's talking about like reintroducing workers' combines, which in the 1970s were a way for not only workers, but also the extra parliamentary left to sort of come together and try and begin to exert some sort of like political narratives over strikes that weren't just about sort of like crude electoralism, mm-hmm. uh, helped to foster a sense of class consciousness. And I think if she's successful in getting combines together um, in in the next 
couple of years, I, I think you'll see a massive shift away from maybe the electoral machine and back towards sort of like workplace and community politics. Yeah, that definitely, definitely sounds like it would be very promising. The problem with the U.S. is partially it's just so huge that it's hard to know sometimes all these different things. And I come from Idaho, which is not not a hub of of, of activity of any sort. Um, but I think that there is promising stuff. I think especially right now, U.S. has a lot of interesting uh, healthcare worker kind of organizing and struggle happening. Um, I hear a lot about kind of like the nurses unions and things getting getting particularly militant right around now. And the Teamsters stuff recently as well, right? Oh, yeah. Huge strike wave underway in the USA at the moment, right? Yeah. And I think it's interesting too, that kind of like experience of the quote unquote, you know, like refusal of work that's been happening that Mm -hmm. is, you know, mostly a fairly kind of like individualistly driven you know, sort of factor. Like it's not necessarily like an organized, like general strike walkout. But I think that there is a sort of sense that even more so than before, there's a a, a realization based on real experience that people are going, hmm, you know, the, the working conditions, the, the general structure of work, the idea of getting paid awful wages for all this stuff, just it doesn't cut it anymore. Um, and I think it's been interesting looking at, you know, there's a lot of talk going on right now about, um, like one of those Reddit pages just called anti-work. That's just, you know, people sharing stories about how they screwed over their bosses. And like even Goldman Sachs wrote an article about how dangerous it was that people were going to this anti-work, you know, <laughs> the website. And um, I think what's been interesting is it, it's been around for a couple of years, but more recently now it's kind of become a lot of it kind of started off as this more, you know, like posted to almost Bob Black yeah. kind of like, yeah, just like, be lazy and, and enjoy it. And like that, you know, that kind of a return of that 90s slacker ish kind of culture. But more recently, it's kind of on its own started having a lot more discussions about like, oh, like, like, what does it mean to unionize? What does it mean to, to really organize around not working or, or working better or, or getting back at your boss? Or so it, it's been kind of interesting that like, on its own, it's sort of developed this, you know, class consciousness about talking about what does it mean to actually start kind of working together? I guess someone on there hacked into a bunch of uh, receipt printers and had it print out like a little manifesto that just said, you know, are you over, are you overworked and underpaid, you know, go to these websites, talk with your coworkers, do all this. (laughs) So all across the U S there are these receipt printers at at service jobs and stuff, printing out these manifestos about how you should, you should start, you know, thinking about your, your working class uh, organizing and stuff. So I think there's some interesting stuff that's starting to starting to kick yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. That sounds fucking really great. Yeah, that question of the refusal of work is always an interesting one, right? I mean, like, I, I mean, I, I suppose the classic narrative about a strike, right, is a strike is really a race between you and your boss mm-hmm. to see who runs out of fucking money first, right? And I think one of the well, you know, so usually like strikes are predicated on strike funds and social solidarity. And I think one of the one of the interesting sort of like returns of a sort of like base form of base unionism or rank and fileism is that a lot of people who come out of the sort of like social movements in the 90s really did have an attention to what we would call like social reproduction. Like how do you how how do you uh, think through the logics of maintaining struggle? You know, in the you know, in the absence of like resources or state help or whatever, 
And I still think those two things need to combine, right? If we can think through of ways that can maintain strikes, you know, uh, indefinitely where people are like relying on alternative or communal forms of social solidarity, then we've got like the weapon to break this sort of like crisis. And in the UK, you've seen like the emergence of um, renters unions, lots of people coming together to resist evictions, um, particularly after COVID, people who fell into like debt with their landlords. And you're seeing like some really amazing actions where community activists are coming out and stopping people from being removed from their homes, etc. I just wonder whether there needs to be more joined up thinking between these campaigns, right? Yeah. So that you know, if a, if um, a service sector uh, if a shop goes into strike action or something, people from the renters union could go down and say, look, you know, we're going to be here for you as well. Because often people aren't prepared. Most people in this sector are literally one fucking paycheck away from fucking eviction anyway, right? Mm-hmm. So they're going to like take that fucking, they're, they're going to cost that equation and probably not take strike action. And I think if we can ensure that people aren't going to get fucking evicted or they've got social support, while we go through these struggles, then we're only going to strengthen our class's hand and our position in these sort of things. But it's going to rely on us opening up a series of dialogues between what is often seen to be quite fragmentary sort of struggles, you know? Mm-hmm. So we need some sort of like coordination between these unions and these sort of renters groups. And I think we need to have a much more active campaign on that. Definitely. I've been, since, since I got over here, the main little group that I've met with have been some people that, have uh connections and origins in the um angry workers of the world group um Mm -hmm. and we've been trying to do sort of that like intermediating networking different groups in uh southwark and lambeth and stuff that it's like how do we get the the many neighborhood specific tenants groups to kind of like start to connect or to engage with you know some of the like post-covid mutual aid groups that are still around it's kind of funny because I think we're going to do the, a newspaper, but it's like, you know, everyone like rolls their eyes at like the socialist newspaper. But I think it's actually more interesting when you think about the news, like the goal of the newspaper is to offer it as a place where other groups can contribute writings about what they're doing and stuff, which is mm. actually quite, I think, more interesting when you really like than the, you know, the newspaper that it's your one group just writes an article about every issue that's going on right now and then affirms that. The fourth international line. Yeah, no, I think I also think something like that is really necessary. I think one of the one of the main problems we have at the moment is just the speed of discourse in the left, um, predicated through social media, is just you know unwielding. You just can't make sense of it. There's no space for like reasoned, principled debate. It's very easy to derail these things with sectarianism and whatever. I think having a space or a journal where groups and individuals can respond to each other in a principled way, where we have like the the slow working out of a collective project together is what's really necessary in this moment. I mean, yeah, I, I I welcome the return of the, of the correspondence journal. basically. Um, I think that would be, uh, that would be a a huge benefit. Yeah. I'm pleased about that. That that sounds really good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Let me know more. Yeah, I, I hope I hope that I'll be able to do more while I'm I'm still here um, in London. But yeah, hopefully hopefully we'll we'll get get some good stuff rolling with it. I guess I'll I'll, I'll wrap it up now before we just start uh, 
talking too much about just this and that project or this and that um, other thing, but um, I'll make sure to link to the new edition of In and Against the State in the podcast so that people can check it out. And thank you so much for agreeing to come on and talk. No, 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 that's, that's, it's been, it's been really great. Um, If people also want a copy of the book, um, I'm sure they can find it already Mm -hmm. on the sort of places (laughs) on the internet where books are placed. Um, um, It can be shoplifted from loads of different places (laughs) um, and it's available to buy uh at radical bookshops you heard it here folks that's it for this bonus episode we hope you enjoyed our discussion with seth wheeler that you check out in and against the state through whatever means you see fit you can find a link to the new edition in the show notes below our next discussion will be on the Indivisible Remainder by Slavoj Žižek. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.